Welcome to Author News Weekly, the weekly news show by authors for authors. We read the news so you don't have to. Join our panel of best-selling authors each week as we take a deep dive into the publishing world, both indie and traditional. Author News Weekly. Yeah, whatever. All right, welcome back to Author News Weekly. I'm Ari McGee. Thanks for joining us. I got a special episode for you today. It occurred to me that we are always talking to our panel of experts, and we don't always get to get into a deep dive with them and talk about the kind of things that they know that makes them experts. And so I wanted to break out with each of our experts a little bit and have a chat. And so today we are going to have the inaugural episode. It's just me and one other person. And I am joined by the illustrious Nick Decker. That's a new one. Illustrious. You should be called illustrious more. You deserve it. I think so. I think I should add it to my bio for sure. You know, hey, did I ever tell you one time I called Joanna Penn venerable? Did you? I did on a podcast. Uh, I I thought it meant like esteemed, right? Like well-known, respected. It's usually like old. Yeah, apparently it means old. (laughs) (laughs) I I honestly didn't know that. And she's not that much. I mean, I don't think she's older than I am. So it wasn't like I was calling her old, you know, but it's pretty funny. And she was like, venerable. Are you sure you mean that? I'm like, I am not sure I mean Joanna Penn. I apologize. Back up. Backpedal. <laughs> Back and of course, I didn't edit it out because I thought, you know, hey, I'm I'm airing it all out there, right? I got my dirty laundry, so it's all good, man. <laughs> it's all good. I'm sure. I'm sure she remembers it well. Uh, so listen, she probably does. She probably goes to bed at night in her diary and writes about it. It's like day number six hundred and thirty-four since I was <laughs> venerated, <Being> venerable. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Well, hey, listen, thanks for hopping on with me today. I wanted to just kind of get to know the squad a little bit more since we're always together and we're always chatting and, you know, give you guys a a little chance to shine a little more on your own. And so I'm just going to ask you some random questions and uh, you can kind of take it where the spirit moves you. All right. Ooh, sounds fun. It does. And terrifying at the same time. I think they made a movie called Footloose about just moving it how the spirit moves you, didn't they? Is that the first question? Yes. Officially, I have to answer that? You don't have to. You can always plead the fifth. <laughs> this is America. There's a constitution. Uh, uh, yes, let the record show there was a movie called Footloose made in the past. <laughs> right on. No, the real first question <laughs> is this, okay? I feel like there was music that I listened to when I was in high school that I thought was the best stuff ever, okay? And now looking I back- I listened to Creed. No, no. I even I won't go that far. <laughs> I won't go, I'm not gonna let you paint me with that brush, man. Okay. So for me, listen, I'll admit, for me, it was Sublime. Okay. I thought Sublime okay, was okay. the greatest group ever. I still like a lot of their stuff, but I don't think I would wear the grooves off of the CD in my car anymore. Okay. So for you, what is that kind of band for you? Like what did you live and die by in high school <laughs> that you maybe wouldn't listen to so much anymore? <laughs> Well, I kind of outed myself earlier. I said Creed. I got to admit, man. With arms <laughs> wide open, huh? <laughs> With arms wide open. <sighs> yeah, dude. I Okay, I guess it sounds like an excuse. Maybe it is. Whatever. Sue me. It was in a rock band. You no, know, we... we <laughs> the name of the band was called Apathy. <laughs> <laughs> That's the most metal thing ever. 
we were edgy high school kids, right? I had hair down on my shoulders. I was the front man of this thing, right? I, I sang lead vocals and rhythm guitar rhythm guitar and you know it was it was good like i gotta say we were pretty good now i was the weakest link for sure but the drummer in the band michael carey is now a, a recording and touring artist in san antonio uh, where, where we all grew up he was the best jazz drummer in the state of texas in high school you know and i don't think that means just his age range um our, our bassist uh zach harris good friend of mine he toured with his dad's country band he would like leave school <laughs> for months at a time to go tour because he was like look school ain't the future for me touring in the country band is probably gonna be more of the future and he was right you know so we had some talent man and it was a cover band unfortunately me i mean it was great because we all love rock songs whatever but we didn't get to the point where we were writing our own stuff regularly we had a couple terrible songs that i wrote so and our set list was like here, here here's a set list yeah. and this reflects what i listened to like this was my cd collection right yeah. creed uh-huh. more creed uh-huh. um more creed <laughs> but then there was some other stuff right we played a lot of matchbox 20 yeah it's 3 a.m i must be lonely here right yeah all that all, all the good stuff yeah yeah I love it, man. <laughs> yeah all that um we did that one song by the calling so lately, I've been wondering. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I'm going wherever you will go. <laughs> Dude, I, I could just picture yeah. it, man. I love it, man. It's like the top 20 of like uh, 05, huh? Yeah, uh, yeah, it's more like 2000, 05. Yeah, somewhere in there. Like 2000, yeah. 2005-ish. Yeah. Yeah. But we, you know, so here's the deal. We also played a lot of Rush. We played a lot of Pearl Jam. We played a lot of... Uh, Pearl Jam's the easiest, blues. man. Because like no Project one knows what, what Eddie Vedder sang at all. Simple man. Hundred percent. That's about it. That's about it. I have that no was... idea. I have no idea. Seemed a harmless little fun is the only <laughs> lyric I know from any Pearl Jam song. <laughs> <laughs> Brutal, man. So yeah, no, so that's it. That was the that was the set list. That's what I listened to. That's so it's a mix. But I think on. I mean, I can't deny it. I was a Creed guy. I loved Creed. It was like just hard enough, right? It was like, well, I can't get into heavy metal because mom's going to be mad. But, you yeah. know, like Creed has that edge to it, you know? Yeah. And Scott Stapp is wearing a crucifix. So this could be Jesus uh, music. This could yeah. be. We just don't know, you know? We don't know. We just got to pretend like it is and, and, and go with it. Hey, sometimes you got to pass it off on your parents however you can, man. I respect that That's hustle. Right. I respect that. <laughs> to be fair, my, my dad was a drummer in a rock band. He actually, they opened for you too way back in the day. Nice. Um, and yeah, so I mean, he was he was real good. I ruined his life. You know, I, I was born and, and he <laughs> became a professional nerd. Um, mm-hmm. So away they go. But you know, he was in a rock band. So I grew up listening to all the 80s classic rock stuff, mm-hmm. like real deep classic rock, like, you know, Little River Band and, you know, NXS and stuff. Like yes, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, right on. A lot of Rush, all that kind of prog rock kind of thing. Yeah, but yeah. That's been ironically, my dad is the reason I started writing. So it kind of all came full circle, you know. And we're definitely going to get to that because I think that that's a terrific story. And I also, uh, anyway, I'm gonna skip that for now. But uh, <laughs> I'm gonna skip that for now because this is not about me. This is about you were gonna me. say you were in a boy band, right? You can tell us about it. I it's was. A safe place you know, here. we were all uh, we were called uh, the hefty homeboys. You know what I mean? <laughs> we we're real light on our feet. You know, we took a lot of direction from Heavy D and the boys. You know, we were good. We were good, but you know. It's the market's limited, so what can you do? My next thing to kind of get into is you said growing up in San Antonio. Now, I, I know you as a traveler, you know, as a man who has lived many places since I've known you. Texas is home for you? Yeah, I wasn't born there, but I, I got there when I was two years old. I, you know, aforementioned father moved us all there for his job 
as a professional nerd, as I mentioned. No, he's an engineer and and he got a great job in San Antonio. And so I grew up there. I lived there for 17-ish years after that, I guess. Total, I don't know, something like that. And then moved to college, which was just up the road, San Marcos, Texas. Uh, met my wife there. We lived in Austin metro area for a little while and moved to Colorado where we sort of settled and put down some roots until we didn't want to be there anymore and moved to Hawaii and back and forth a little bit and ended up yeah and now we're out here in Hawaii and we'll see how long this lasts but but yeah I think I can still call Texas home safely yeah yeah I feel like when if you can call Texas home you should probably just call Texas home that's true yeah they tend to frown on people who leave and call texas home um if you haven't haven't done the time you know and i think i've done the time yeah isn't that saying like never ask a man if he's from texas if he is he'll tell you and if he's not why would you want to embarrass him (laughs) yeah that one it's like well i wasn't born in texas but i got here as fast as i can that was uh, a common plaque found on my my university professor's uh walls yeah no that's look i mean texas is great i think the problem is you say you're from texas it doesn't really mean anything because Austin is not San Antonio, is not Houston, is not sure. Dallas, is not El Paso, sure. is not Brownsville, right? And so and that's generally true with most states, but Texas is just bigger, you know? Yeah, yeah. A there's wide a range. Of, a of, yeah, for sure. For sure. Now, did I hear you say you met your wife in college? Yep. Yeah, we met at Texas State University, home of the Bobcats. That's a Bobcat sound for anybody just listening. I know, it's pretty I, I wish they could see the motion that you just did. <laughs> you have to do the, the, little, the little hand. Yeah, I was in music school and she was in elementary education. She has a degree in that. We met toward the end of my career, my college career. She's a, a year, two years younger than I'm, something like that. So toward the end of my college career, and we got married and did a year in Round Rock, Texas, which is right north of Austin. And then promptly decided to end the 100 days of 100 degrees that Texas likes to tout as some kind of like feature, mm, you know? Yeah. Not yeah. A bug. We saw right through that. You know, like, yeah, you know, like, good marketing guys, but. I'm out. Mm, Can't do that yeah. anymore. Firm pass. Firm, firm. hard note. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's cool, man. That's real cool. I, I, I met me and Desi met in college as well. So uh, I think that's cool. Very cool. Very. That was cool. Florida, you said, yeah. You yeah, yeah, yeah. Back in Tampa Florida. Area. Yeah, yeah. The Bulls, University of South mm. Florida Bulls. Yes. Do you have a noise you have to make when you say that? No, but I should probably make something up because I'm really jealous that you got to go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Then I have to clean my mic off if I do that. A bunch of nose sounds. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Good deal, man. And so you left college. And now I know that you did music in college, right? And so what was kind of your thought as you were leaving college? Like, what did you think your life path was ideally? Man, if you had one, is, it's I tough think, when you're a kid, you know? No, no, no. I, I did, though. I think the, the problem is we should have that after high school. And we don't, you know, so we're told to choose this thing. So how, one of the many ways I think the public system, school system is broken, you know, it's not the worst, but it just kind of sucks that, you know, we're sent into this thing called college or university where you got to pick something and that's something you're going to spend a lot of money to learn everything about so that you can go teach it or do it or whatever for the rest of your life. Hmm. And the whole component of the rest of your life doesn't really exist anymore in that there's no one career most of the time sure. for, for people our age, right? Like it just, that's not how it is. And certainly not for younger guys, but that doesn't even Talk about the fact that if most idiots, you know, college age, are, they have no idea what they want to do with their life. They don't have anything to do with what they do with the next three months, right? So, you know, they go into this thing and they live at the school and it's all fun and party and games and all that. And then they get out and they're like, well, I don't want to be on Wall Street or whatever. So for me, I had that kind of revelation probably my junior year, one of my first senior years, I don't know. And, uh, and I was like, you know, this music thing is great. I had already completed the general, what you call the general music degree. So I could have graduated with a general music degree. 
However, I was in a track that was more composition. There were some education components that I had. I hadn't done student teaching, for example. So that was going to be my final year. It was all that. And so I had this revelation that like, you know, I don't think I want to be in a classroom. I wish they would have put us in a classroom early on so we would know. Yeah. But they wanted us to spend all the money first and then put us in the classroom and say, classrooms suck. You probably don't want to be here. Go figure out, you know, another career path or just pay us more and get another degree. Yeah. So I, I was, I was onto him. It was a little late, but it was onto him. Mm. And so what I did was uh, I switched to business and at Texas state, the business degree wouldn't allow you to have minor. So all of my music stuff would have been for not. Right. Mm. So I did the opposite. I said, okay, well, I'm going to do a business minor mm. and, and then add on some extra things here and there entrepreneurship wise and business wise um, and just get, or the music will be the major still, you know? So anyway, Long story short, I added a tech on another senior year and uh, and graduated with that because I was really interested in business. And I even then, I didn't really know what it was going to be. So I thought, uh, you know, we'll go into marketing. We'll go do something like that. Truthfully, what happened, I think this is happening more and more often, is I just got the job that accepted me, right? I just took the job that would have me. Sure. And it ended up being a really, really shitty company, just terribly run and managed and uh Faith Highway, if anyone's out there listening, I'll call them out and I'll stand by that. But, uh, you know, it was just a horrible, they did a horrible job treating people nicely. Let's just put it that way. Mm. And I was essentially trained really well to rip people off and sell websites that were outdated and all that. But it, it did give me a little bit of uh, experience in the, you know, marketing world and sales and things like that. And, and there was a lot of sleaziness to it, but I got out of there as fast as I could really. Mm. Didn't have anything to do instead. So I just sort of coasted on savings and, you know, only had a part-time job at the zoo and all that. This is after we'd moved to Colorado, right? So started writing a little bit and one thing led to another. And then here we are working full-time as an author, you know, kind of a, I mean, obviously there's more to it than that, right? But it, it was never in my mind in college or even after college that I was going to be a writer. It was just, yeah, I enjoyed reading those kind of books, but that was it. It was never going to turn into something like this. And so, All accidental, I would say. And so, <laughs> or serendipitous. Uh, serendipitous, yes. Uh, never. I was, <laughs> nothing, man. I just had a weird thought. In any event, so now I know a little bit about this story, but the people that are listening to us, you know, they may not know you as well as I do. And so, the impetus for you kind of putting out your first book, writing, and kind of getting the gumption to finish something and publish something uh, was your father, right? Yeah. In a sense, it was his dad as well. My granddad passed away. And the year that he died, I, I thought, you know, hey, it'd be kind of a cool give to my dad would be a book that I wrote. Because the reason behind all it was that both of those guys and I would, you know, swap novels and read kind of the same, like the same genre, right? We would read the same sort of books. And so naively, I thought, well, that shit, how hard can it be, right? All these books that I read, you know, the other authors have figured out how to pull it off. I'm, I'm sure I can too. So let me just do it. So I started a few chapters and, you know, kind of became a little bit of a thread of a story. And then I did some research that led to some cool ideas and just kept going, right? Just had no idea what I was doing, but got stuck in the muddy middle and just decided to actually study some structure a little bit to see if there's, I thought maybe, maybe somebody out there has written down how to write a novel. Maybe, I don't even know. Probably not. And I figured it's possible. Yeah. I'll go Google it you know. Yeah. worth looking into, right? Maybe there's a section of writing stuff at Barnes and Noble I could go check out, but right. most likely not, but I'll try. So, you know, I did, and I actually found some books, right? Believe it or not, that's, yeah. it's something that's been done. So <laughs> again, the message I'm trying to get across is I was very naive and kind of an idiot, you might say, mm. which seems to be a theme in my life. But I do also contend that if I, if I had known how hard it was going to be, I wouldn't have done it in the first place. Sure. So I think I that naivety that. actually saved yeah. me. You know what I mean? I like, agree with yeah, 100%. I, like, I just wrote, yeah. I wrote it. And it took a while and I got it done. And if I would have known then what I know now, I'd probably be too terrified to start. 
you might not be too scared. And I think a lot of people know and they're scared and that's why they write a book, right? So that night he saved me and actually got that first book squirted out. And that one, I tried to cram all my ideas into because it was only ever going to be one book. And um, I inevitably had ideas that didn't fit. So those went into a swipe file. I think I was using Evernote at the time. It just became a folder of ideas and that led to the second book and then the third book and, and on and on and on. But that first one, you know, I finished it. It was terrible. Um, a mutual friend of ours, actually, uh, Mike Morehouse, um, or Andy McGregor, his, his author name is known. Yeah. Great dude. Great dude. Totally random. Just reached out to me. I had a blog at the time where I was, you know, basically like a diary. You know, like, here's my journal. You know, I'm writing a book. It's hard, you know, whatever. And it was reasonably well read, I would say. And and so he had found it and found a blog post and was like, hey, I'm kind of shifting into a, a career change. And I think I might want to be an editor or a writer or something. I would love to edit your book free of charge if you'll just give me some props in the future. And I was like, free? For free? Three ninety nine. So, you know, I took him up on it and God, he did a bang up job. He just went over and above. I would say I got what I paid for, but I didn't pay a damn thing. So I, I don't know why he did it. I must have been super good looking or something, but mm. he edited the whole thing. And, uh, and it seems like he still likes me to this day. So I think he's just that good of a guy. All right. That's what I want to say. Agreed. He still likes me to this day after I what I've been through with that first book. But um, anyway, long story short, we're still friends and all that. And the first book was great. My dad loved it. And people besides my dad even bought the damn thing. So something was working and I kept doing it. And here I am talking to you on a podcast. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. I've reached the top. Let's just I've reached the top. This is the Zenith. <laughs> <laughs> the Zenith. So, the Ictus has been, uh, <laughs> it's been reached. <laughs> so, um, so, okay. Now, kind of give me a glimpse at after you came out with the first book, you showed your pops, he liked it, you know what I mean? Which is great. Like our parents usually tell us that we're awesome little special uh, creatures. And then you get some affirmation for some other people that are buying your book and they like it. What kind of prompted you to decide, well, let me go ahead and put out another one and see how that's received. Was that you trying to just continue the story? Or was that you saying, well, maybe I got something here if I keep plowing away at, at these books? Yeah, it was definitely the latter. I So I think this is the one of the things that I picked up at the company, the marketing job I, I, I hated, was this idea that, or I don't even know if it was that or just kind of my own mindset, but I didn't treat the book or any book, and I still don't, as like precious. You know, this this, this unique stuff like that's just amazing. And it's, it's the book of all books, you know. Mm-hmm. I just treated it like a product. And, and not all products are perfect and they can get better and they can iterate. And, and, you know, I bought into the whole lean startup methodology, the whole minimum viable product and all that and mm. iterate, 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 get it out quickly, get some feedback. And so it was not about getting to the best book possible. It was the best book I could do at the time, every time, sure. But it wasn't like I was trying to write the next great American novel. It was just write another book, write another book, write another book. If anything's going to be shown, if anything's going to come of this, it's going to be only after I put in the time and work of producing many, many books, you know, not just one. Mm. So thankfully that was another way area I was naive. I mean, it turns out, I think most new authors think, yeah, well, I've, you know, I've heard the statistics. I know, I know most books aren't going to make it, but this one's different. You know, this one's going to be amazing mm. and great. That's awesome that they, that they have that much confidence in themselves. I never, ever, ever thought that about my work. Mm. Um, and I really still don't. I think the the game isn't write the one book that's going to be amazing. It's be the brand that's going to be amazing. Write all the books that are going to be amazing. But it takes that collective effort, you know. So I just no, I kept going. I kept writing and and just releasing and seeing what would come of it. And it was, of course, there was a lot of affirmation, or you know, I got from readers who weren't my parents that actually liked the stories and everything. And I took all their their feedback, you know, things like, well, it's not 
you know, I used Mike for the first book, but then I didn't edit the second or third <clears> one, right? Initially, it was just something I, well, I edited it myself. It should be fine. So I just took feedback like that. They would give me four stars because it was a great story, good plot, good characters, but the editing was poor or whatever. Mm. And so I just used that to iterate and eventually got to the point where I've got a process now where the books aren't perfect and I don't want them to be perfect because I don't think that exists, but they're also better than I could ever make them alone. And I think they're pretty dang good books when they get released most of the time. Mm. You know, okay. Hopefully. And so and so now let's talk about your you're one of the mythical author creatures who has made the jump to full-time authoring. And I actually did it on purpose too, which is, yeah, which is even, <laughs> even more unique. You know, most people are like, well, I'm unemployed. I guess I'm an author now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so at what point did you wake up and look at yourself in the mirror and go, yeah, yeah, this is going to be what I do. And uh, to hell with any regular stabilized income, I'm going to make a go of it myself. When did that happen? I take no credit for that. I blame my wife for all my problems. No, for all, for all of that success or whatever it may be. We were at, I remember the day and the time in the restaurant in Colorado Springs. It was actually, I don't remember the date. It was in January sometime, some date. <laughs> the year would have been 2018 and 2017, sorry. And she sat me down, you know, we were eating dinner and everything. And so she didn't sit me down, but you know, you get the, the, the story's better that way, right? Sure. I'm um, she sat I me down and we're, we're eating dinner and drinking. And <clears throat> finally, she just says, when are you going to leave the church? Because at the time I was, I had a day job as a worship technical director guy at a church, a mid-sized church in Colorado Springs. Great job, amazing people, um, and just a, a phenomenal experience there. But of course, there was a ceiling on my salary, right? That was only ever going to make so much. It was never going to be more than senior pastor, man, right? It was always going to be <laughs> somewhere in the middle of the pack. And so, you know, I knew that she knew that she was working at the zoo at the time. She had full-time income, so we essentially had these three incomes: writing, and then church, the zoo. And she, she just was, at what point do you think you'd leave the church? And I said, you know, I think I could financially set because you have a job. So my writing income doesn't really have to be, you know, 30% more than what I make at the, at the day job because it's not supporting both of us necessarily. It's just me. But I, I just don't know if I want to because it's, it's such a good job and it's secure and all that. And she said, yeah, I understand, but, you know, you should. <laughs> it was kind of the, the gist of the conversation. Mm. And I was like, yeah, I know. I always talk about being an entrepreneur and I want to do this. And it's probably true. So that was the catalyst for it. But uh, I, I came to the ultimatum I gave, gave me was figured out and give me a date. And so I said, okay, challenge accepted. I, I think I'm going to get through Easter because that's big season for church. It's like Christmas to Easter is the big season. Mm-hmm. And some are a little bit slower typically for worship stuff anyway. So that was the cycle. I was like, I don't want to get them through Easter. I don't want to say anything until, you know, after Easter. Well, it ended up, we, um, meaning my boss and, and the senior pastor, another friend of mine, we just had a meeting uh, somewhere in the middle of that process, February, March, whatever. And we just were talking about different things, long-term plans, things like that. And they said, well, how, what are you feeling? You know, how's the writing going? You know? And I felt like I could be honest with these guys. So I, mm. I did, I said, look, I I'm doing pretty well. Um, I think it might be time to start talking about an exit plan for the church. And they were like, okay, great. And it was probably the most amicable split that I could imagine. You know, I was honest, they were honest. And um, we set a date for July 1st, mm-hmm. um, being the, well, June 30th being the last day and July 1st, I would go full-time as an author. Mm-hmm. And that happened and I was excited. I drove down to Santa Fe, New Mexico and hung out with David Wood and Sean Ellis for a weekend. And we drank and wrote and were merry. And the high lasted a couple months, maybe a few months. And then Emily, my wife said, I need to quit my job. I'm not feeling it. It's not working. There's some things like that going on. And mm. of course the answer I gave her was, well, you can't. No, <laughs> of course I told her, well, of course you gotta do what you gotta do. Right. So we'll figure this out. But 
my our three incomes went quickly to like one income yeah. and that one income wasn't really quite enough. So yeah. that's well, a way longer story than in, no, in no, 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 no. <laughs> and actually that leads me perfectly into my next thing. And now, you know, I don't want to get too personal. And the only reason I ask you this is because I've heard you share it before on a podcast. Yeah, I'm not. There's nothing that's off topic, man. You're yeah. Well, you know, I know that anything, so. there's a lot of people out there who would be dealing, who deal with anxiety in their normal process of writing, right? Like I, I'm not good enough to do this in general, but I know you were doing it and you were supporting your family. And, you know, like you said, you were down to one income and you dealt with some struggles like that, you know, some anxiety and things like that. Do you mind telling the people a little bit about that? Sure, man. It's not a secret. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why I, I, I don't think I'll ever say I've recovered from anxiety. Like I'm not an, I'm still anxious. You know, I'm still anxious as a person. I, I still get anxiety. But it's certainly not to the extent that I, I had then. You know, I'm not having panic attacks, for example. But I think one of the reasons why I'm not anymore is that I'm, I've been open with it. I've been able to talk to people. Mm. Here's the deal. There were a lot of things in my life that should have and did trigger anxiety. And the first one that I think is most important is I have I must have a proclivity toward anxiety. That's how I'm wired or whatever. Just I'm going to be prone to anxiety. That's something we can't control, right? So we either have it or we don't. Mm. There were things like, you know, financial instability. It wasn't that we weren't making enough money. It was just that what you do as an author, you know, we were blessed and cursed by being able to look at our, our sales every hour, every minute, you know, all the throughout time. the day. Refresh, the time. refresh, refresh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, if I didn't have any good habits built about checking that once a day only, which I think is, is what we should do, because at that point, at that, that granular level, there's absolutely nothing we can affect it hour by hour. Yeah. Just it's not going to happen. So there's no point in, in looking at it, right? So but anyway, what we do is look at it and we extrapolate. So, okay, well, I made, you know, $10 this hour. Well, shit, that's not going to be enough money this today. Well, and if I keep making $10 an hour, that's not going to be enough money at the end of the month. Like, it just doesn't work. And I'm spending this on ads. And all of a sudden, our head goes into this really anxious space. Mm. There was that. There was, um, of course, you know, leaving my job, Emily's leaving her job. She's got some, you know, some, some similar, you know, depression kind of thing happening. And I've got anxiety. And so there's all these little triggers that are causing my anxiety. And those are real things. And those are things that should be looked at. Like, I think financial security is important for a couple with kid. Right. Mm. <laughs> but there's also the truth of the matter that sometimes we just get anxious. And anxiety isn't necessarily this real thing, right? It's this idea that is in our head that it's all going to be doom and gloom. Mm. And there may be some truth to the things that you're worried about in that moment. They're like, hey, it's important to be financially stable. But at the same, on the kind of the, the, the other side of the same coin is that, no, this is just an anxious thought that's in my head. It's going to pass. Right. Mm -hmm. So long story longer, I guess. I've since learned that by having like a tool belt, you know, like a Batman style tool belt full of stuff that can fight anxiety. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Batman style tool belt is, it's like people think, you know, hey, I have this thing and it's mental health related and I can go to a doctor and get some medicine that can fix it. And that's maybe somewhat true, right? Like I think there, I know that there are medications that helped me and there's like the panic attack medicine and there's the long-term anxiety medicine. But if that's it, if that's the only thing we do, I think we're potentially setting ourselves up for long-term you know, medication, which may, whatever you feel, however you want to feel about that. But you're also missing some things that could be cheaper, easier, more effective. And so for me, and again, I hope everybody knows I'm, I'm not a clinical uh, anything, uh, nor am I trained in any of it. But my personal experience has been that if I have a tool belt of sorts full of things that I can use at different times or all at the same time, depending on how good or bad the anxiety is, a much better setup for, for the future. So just things like, you know, medication is in that tool belt. Mm -hmm. Alcohol, believe it or not, is in my tool belt. 
if I can have one, I'm feeling super anxious and I have one beer, quickly that edge just kind of goes away. Again, I'm, <laughs> I'm not condoning any of this. I'm saying for me, this is what I, I learned, you know, the hard way. That doesn't mean I'm always going to reach for a beer when I feel the slightest bit anxious. It means that that's one tool in the tool belt of potential things that I can use or it's, it's, a, it's a drug, right? It's something external that I put into my body that can fix it. But there's things that aren't drugs that are also in the tool belt, like docking for anxiety, you know, sitting people down that I knew that I had, that had struggled with it and saying, hey, I know you told me about this, but I wasn't paying attention. Tell me again. And that really helped. Mm-hmm. Meditation, prayer. I mean, these are all things that are uh, counseling. That was one therapy that I, you know, that was in my tool belt. So the point is, that's how I approach it now. It's, it's a lot more holistic. Holistic medicine, for example, is another one, right? Mm-hmm. Massage, reading a book, going to the beach. Like, these are all things that we talk about that we kind of know. But I think the, it's not like one of those things is going to solve all of our problems. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I know that's true for me. I, having all those things in the tool belt that I can pull out at different times has been crucial because I may not be able to pull out my phone with the AirPods in and just meditate for 15 minutes. And I'm going to be in a position where I can do that. So it's important to be able to have tools that I can reach for to deal with those kind of things. But you just asked about, you know, <laughs> short answer to that. That's my long answer to your question. No, no, that's good. I think that that's something that a lot of people struggle with. And, you know, I think destigmatizing that uh, is always a great thing, you know, to hear that, like, people that you would look to, people would look to you and be like, well, you know, Nick's got it going on for you to say, yeah, I do have it going on, but this is how I have it going on. You know, I take yeah. care of myself and, yeah. I, and I do some things to combat the tough feelings that I do get sometimes. So I think that's awesome. The scaffolding is there. It's just all duct taped together. And I'm not sure I trust it all the time. Um, So yeah, it looks like I'm not all put together on the outside, but you walk into that place and you realize it's, you know, it's hanging on a thread. No, it's not that bad, but, but that's, you know, you said it, you said it best, man. And I think we need to destigmatize it. And that's probably, you know, as this morphs into a personal issue that I've dealt with and I'm dealing with, it's Mm. kind of becoming like a platform. You know, mm-hmm. and, and I'm, I feel like I have a voice now. And what I want to say to the world is destigmatize the hell out of this because I think, honestly, every single person on the planet probably has dealt or is dealing with some kind of anxiety. Mm-hmm. But we don't realize that it manifests in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. Brother, I lost like 30 pounds being anxious. Mm-hmm. It's the best weight loss plan I can think of. <laughs> you got any more of that anxious you can give me? <laughs> you got any more? I have, I'm popping those anxious pills. Look, but when I'm saying that tongue in cheek, because I think, you know, there were times when I wasn't necessarily feeling anxious. Mm-hmm. It didn't, I wasn't in, you know, fearing doom and gloom and you know, we're going to live on the streets mm-hmm. and I didn't have panic attacks and I was still losing weight because I was anxious. So I think it manifests itself in different ways. And if we're not careful, we can disassociate, you know, we can say, well, this is, you know, this is causing, you know, me to lose weight. And so it's good. It's like, well, hold time out. Like you got some things you got to check out, right? It's, there's some stuff happening that we've been taught, I think, to push these feelings down inside. And that's a blanket statement. I'm not just talking about men, not just talking about our generation, but that is true. Stereotypically of men in our generation that we're not supposed to talk about this kind of stuff, right? You just grin and bear it. Yeah. Um, and hell dude, talking about it is one of the best things you can do. But I think the problem is we don't even think we have a problem half the time. Yeah, you're right. You're right about that, man. Yeah. That's a, such a deep conversation. We could probably spin off of this for we quite probably, a while. Yeah. yeah but <laughs> in, in the essence of time and not doing this, uh, not making this uh, a long form show about that. Maybe we will circle back to that later, uh, in another episode. What was well, something that you are, uh, fairly prolific at that I, that I'm impressed with, right. As someone who uh, has been on two podcasts with you, uh, is the amount of podcasts that you managed to put into the ether, right? (laughs) So (laughs) what was your first podcast and how many, how many have you been 
the host of or, or the, the mind behind? The host with the most. You know, this is always something I, I jokingly accuse Jim of because he used to be the guy who was like, wow, oh, podcast for this, and podcast for that. Yeah. You know, I pull podcasts out of my pocket, you know. <laughs> and I think it's definitely kind of uh, turned a little bit and I'm, I'm podcasting more than I probably should. Right. It started with the Self-Publishing Answers podcast, which was just going to be a solo cast. I was going to do that and just kind of talk about the writing process. And yeah. it was like the new version of what I was blogging about. It was just faster. I could just talk sure. instead of write, you know. Yeah, it was always going to be interview style. You know, we had folks like Joe, Joe Penn on there, and and a bunch of other uh, venerable, <laughs> um, a bunch of esteemed colleagues uh, were on that show. I picked up Kevin, and he became a, a co-host with me. And then we picked up Justin Sloan later on, and it kind of came this this three Kevin Tomlinson. Sort of Kevin Tomlinson. Kevin Tomlinson. Yep. Kevin. He Tomlinson. is always the Kevin. When we say Kevin, there is one Kevin. And it's someone. He is the Kevin. Yeah, Kevin Tomlinson is my version of you know the you know the bacon number. You've heard of that? This six degrees. That, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like you Google like uh, you know Tom Hanks bacon number, right? And mm-hmm. it's like two or one or whatever. It's like how many how many movies removed is this actor from acting in a movie with Kevin Bacon? Yeah. Like my my bacon number is like the the, the Tomlinson number. That's my Kevin number. <laughs> like how many podcasts are you away from a podcast that's been uh, done with Kevin Tomlinson? <laughs> um, mine is mine is zero, right? Because we did zero. Because we, yeah, the bacon numbers, oh. or is it? I don't know if you start with one or zero, but oh, I, I like. Yeah, that. so it started with self-publishing answers, and I, you know I, that was my fault. We ended it. I just got. I think I got burned out. I wish we didn't because that would have kind of was one of the early early ones. There was only a few at the time. Um, I think it could have been pretty cool, but inevitably it died, and um, we just sort of rolled it into some other things. And I was pretty much anti-podcasting for a long time. Yeah. Anyway, I didn't like podcasting as a medium because it was a, a very large time commitment for very little gain, typically. Right. And I mean financially. Like I got to the point in my career where I was like, look, I can be I can be writing or I can be not writing. And just about all of the time, all the money I make comes from the writing side. And so podcasting strongly falls into the not writing category and it definitely doesn't make any money. So I don't know if I should do it, but I don't know if I've, I want to say full circle. I still am sort of anti-podcast if we're doing it because we just need, you know, to hear our own voice or, you know, it's something we, I don't know. Here's the deal. I think, especially in this space, there's, there's a lot of saturation in podcasting. There's a lot of people saying the same stuff over and over again. That's not bad necessarily if we've got a unique way of presenting it, but it's not the right medium to reach people with new content, if that makes sense, with new things they haven't heard before. Yes. Like, yeah, sure. There's going to be a handful of folks who come on and they've never published a book and they want to learn and they're going to start, you know, to Google what podcast to listen to about. Yeah, we're going to, we're going to pick up a few of those, but generally speaking, we're all kind of talking to each other. You know, we're all, we're all podcasting to the same people that are podcasting. And I just kind of feel like it's, it's something that I, I think can lead to something. If it sounds vague, I'm doing that on purpose because I, I'm not quite ready to announce what that thing is, but there's, mm. there's a purpose for it this time. That's not going to end with podcasting. Um, and I think that's the way forward is kind of the way out. It's do something that is more like a podcast network that you can then monetize in certain ways. And then it becomes beneficial once again, right? So support it with ads or, you know, whatever, um, sponsorships, that kind of thing. But it's very hard to do with an individual podcast. I think it's a little bit easier if you've got a whole network of them. Hint, hint. Oh, oh, you heard it here, folks. I have no idea what he's talking about, but it sounds good. Surprise. I own every word out of your mouth. Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, listen, man, I know we're coming up to some time here. And uh, I think that this was a really good primer into you, kind of like your story, where you come from, 
you know, frankly, why people, you know, should listen to you, you know, kind of like your experience in the game, you know, because you've been at this for a long time. And uh, I think that we could definitely uh, do another podcast about marketing stuff because, you know, you're definitely one of the brighter marketing minds that I know. And so uh, I think that you have a lot that you could kind of pass on to people. You know, you've written books about the stuff. And so I think that it's definitely worth hearing your hearing your side of some of the kind of uh, the usual discussions that people have about marketing, you know, especially considering that I don't know anyone else who hired an old hobo to read their bad reviews, you know, so. No, no, that's not something you see every day. No. <laughs> I you know with marketing, it, it, I can strongly tell you, you know, I can tell you what I did wrong is what I'm trying to say. Yes. You know, I can, I can tell you what I've done that doesn't work. And I've done a lot of things and I've spent a lot of money on things that didn't work. So if that's helpful for people, you know, that's typically one of those. I, I don't like to say, well, this is going to work. This works every time because it, it's just going to be untrue as soon as I say it. Yeah. Um, but that's the approach a lot of other marketing guys take is, oh my God, I figured this out. Let me go make a course about it and tell the world. And then they're going to have to double down on that thing because that's the thing, right? They're that guy. Um, and I'm more, and I'm not, they're that guy now. And I'm not calling anybody out. Honestly, I'm not. I'm just saying that I take the more careful approach, I think, of, well, let me test this. And now let me test it again. And now let me test somebody else's books with it. Now let me test, you know, and, and, and I never really get to the point where I'm ready to say, well, I, I have a course. But yeah, I can, I can write books about it because books aren't, I, I don't, and people will hate me for saying this, but books aren't really forever. You know, if we want them to change, we can just rewrite them and re-release them or take them Version off. Version 2.0. Yeah, there you yeah, go. Right on. That's my right approach on. to marketing, you know, is it's, it's going to change. Yeah, I know it's going to change. We should all admit that it's going to change. Let's just be open to that change and try to talk about it and get in front of it, you know? Yeah, agreed, agreed. And we'll definitely get into that next time. And I think it'll be good. I think it'll make for some good listening. Well, all right, brother. I appreciate you uh you joining me, man. Yeah, thanks for having me, dude. This is uh we definitely needed to do this. This is a good idea. Yeah, definitely. We'll do this more often. So listeners, be on the lookout. You are gonna get episodes like this from Jim Heskett and from Pippa Warner as well, as well as a couple of other surprises that I've got up my sleeve that I don't want to tell you about now because then it won't be a surprise. So mm-hmm. I would, I that's what I do, man. I just, you got to keep them wanting a little something. So for me and Nick, I'm Ari McGee saying this meeting's over. Thanks guys. Bye. <laughs>